0: On the roundtable today, we're talking sharks, risks to populations, both human and shark, and what to do about it. On Friday, WA Emergency Services responded to reports of a shark bite incident in the state's north with the extent of injuries to a man unknown. A Victorian teenager was lucky to have his foot after it was punctured to the bone by a shark in Portland on Thursday. Uh, The CSIRO says... New techniques are being developed to create better estimates of white shark numbers, but according to a 2018 report from the National Marine Biodiversity Hub, there isn't actually evidence of shark numbers increasing, although the number of shark attacks is increasing in Australia and around the world. One of the most controversial risk mitigation techniques, of course, is the shark net. New South Wales uses nets at 51 beaches, removing them from um, the early portion of the whale migration season from May to September to protect them. Uh, Queensland manages nets and drum lines at 86 beaches and doesn't remove them. In WA there's a mix of shark barriers and nets that are used at seven beaches. So should we still be using shark nets? Are there better ways? And what has, has actually happened to the populations of sharks? Have they increased? Joining us today uh, are a, a distinguished panel of guests, uh, including Shark Expert award-winning filmmaker and conservationist and an icon around the world, Valerie Taylor, who's famously swum with sharks all over the world, captured amazing footage, was an advisor to the film Jaws, but has also been a lead advocate for shark protection. And Valerie's life and career are the subject of a fantastic uh, Nat Geo documentary called Playing With Sharks, which came out last year and which is available on Disney. Valerie Taylor, welcome to the Roundtable. Thank you. Great to I'm have pleased you. Pleased
1: to be here.
0: Yes. Fantastic to have Great. you. We're also joined by a PhD, PhD candidate in shark bite mitigation measures at Flinders University, Madeline Riley. Welcome, Madeline.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Great to have you. And we're also joined by Chris Beaton, who's joining us very early uh, from WA this morning. Chris is the Head of Sustainability and Environment for the City of Coburn's Peri-Urban Council, just south of Fremantle, um, where an eco-net is installed. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Julian. How are you going? Very well. Very well, indeed. Uh, Valerie, uh, you've got uh, really unparalleled experiences with sharks. I wonder if you could speak to us about that phrase I used at the beginning, risks to population, uh, both shark populations but then also human populations?
1: Interesting question, Julian. Um, The more people in the ocean swimming, and there's more and more every year, the more people are going to be entering an alien environment to which we were not born to be The shark, it's their home. There's not as many sharks around as there used to be. Once I could go snorkelling off the coast of New South Wales and see a shark just about every time. I haven't seen a shark out there for a long time except grey nurse. And, of course, they don't attack people. There's certainly less sharks and more people in the water. There's no doubt at all in my mind because I make a living in the water.
0: Mm. Um, Valeria, I can't let this opportunity to speak to you go without just asking you to just tell us some of your most treasured memories with large sharks.
1: Well, the greatest memory was during the filming of a feature film called Blue Water White Death, mm. in which I played myself. <laughs> and it was getting out of the cage with over 60 very dangerous sharks, oceanic white chips, responsible for more attacks on people and all the other sharks in the world put together. And we got out of the cages and made ourselves a place in the pack until we were accepted as other marine animals come to feed on the whale. That was probably the greatest moment I've ever had because I thought we'd all be killed. (laughs) I stepped out and I thought, well, this is it.
0: I watched that footage last night and I must say I was hiding <laughs> under my doona when I saw it happen. It is absolutely incredible footage, but, uh, but the way you interact with the animals under the water is also uh, astounding. Uh, Valerie, thank you um, so much for telling us about that. And I wonder if you could just tell us also about how you think the perceptions of sharks and sharks, shark attacks have changed you know, in, in the, the few decades since Jaws came out.
1: Well, I think more people are realising that sharks don't come up on the beach and chase you up the street. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> you have to make the decision, and it's your decision alone, to go in the water. I always have made that decision myself. I have been bitten three times, once quite badly, and the decision is yours. I, the other thing is that there are things to do if you do see a shark potentially dangerous shark near you, stay still. Don't attract attention to yourself. Don't thrash the water. I know this from experience of what, 62 years of working with sharks in their own environment.
0: That's amazing. Thank you very much, uh, Valerie Taylor. If I could come to you now, uh, Madeline Riley, um, uh, what do we actually know in terms of the, the numbers of uh, how many sharks there are and also shark attacks? You, you've been part of a team that's been working on, on, on cleaning up the, the data of the longest running database on shark and human interactions. Could you tell us about that database and what, they, what, what the state of the stats is?
2: Yeah, so we published the Australian Shark Incident Database or the ACID. It was previously known as the Australian Shark Attack File, which some people may have heard of. And this database contains reports of almost 1,200 shark bites that have happened in Australia and they date back to 1791. So it's really long running. And this data were collated by Taronga Zoo using questionnaires provided to shark bite victims and witnesses and um, information provided by state governments and it includes so much information like um, the location, the shark species, shark length, um, activity of the victim, what injuries were sustained, time of day, weather, so many, so much information, virtually everything you can think of around the shark bite. Um, so a lot of information around these events and this data set is now mm-hmm. available of course excluding personal details, and can be used by researchers and analysts to decipher environmental, biological and social patterns of shark bites around Australia. And and of course, this will help aid us as scientists and also conservationists and authorities and members of the public to all make informed decisions when implementing or selecting for mitigation measures.
0: And, and Valerie's observed that the numbers of sharks are, are, are down, uh, in her view. But the but the, we do seem to be having more shark attacks. She says, "Well, the more people in the water is what, what's your assessment of the 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 rate of incidence of these interactions and what's driving that?"
2: Yeah. Look. Well, the um the number of shark bites, the raw number of shark bites are increasing, but um so so are uh, the number of humans and the number of humans living coastally and going in the water and the mm. rate of surfing has increased and, and all sorts of things like this. But importantly, also the rate of fatality is decreasing and that's probably because of our advanced, um, you know, awareness of sharks and shark bites and using tourniquets and medical responses and, and things like that. But, look, unfortunately, as human populations rise, um and more people use the water, it is only logical to anticipate a further increase in shark bites. We're going to come in, into contact with sharks. So it's a, it's a wicked problem, you know, what to do about this. And that's why we're so invested in research of shark bite mitigation measures.
0: Yeah, indeed. And it obviously raises that question of, how, of what mitigation measures um, are, are appropriate. And Valerie, I know you're opposed to shark nets. Could you tell us why that is?
1: Well, I've been a diver for a long time, and in the 70s and 80s and the 60s, Ron and I, if we saw boys on the shark nets under the water, we would stop our tinny, jump over the side and see what it is. And frequently, more frequently than anything else, we see beautiful, innocent animals, and we cut them free if they're still alive. In all our lives, we've only seen two great whites in the nets and both times they were juveniles. One was still alive. Ron gave it oxygen out of his, his mouthpiece and we took it to shore and we sold it to the porpoise pool. This was back in the early 70s. And uh, I want to see the nets go. They are killers of beautiful marine life. Once you've seen a baby dolphin, and they're so sweet, trapped in a net, covered in scratches where its mothers tried to get it out, it makes you feel Every time I think of that, I feel sad. Mm. We kill far more innocent animals in the nets than sharks by a long, long way. And there are better ways to deter sharks. I'll tell you exactly how to do it later. The scientists will poo me. But I work with them. I don't work in an office. I work underwater. I know what
0: I say. Well, we'll look forward to coming back to that, uh, Valerie. And uh, speaking of those rescues, I must say one of the other really compelling pieces of the documentary Playing with Sharks was that footage of you and Ron untangling um, a really large shark who was caught up in a, um, a wire of some sort and, and letting yes. it go free. It's just just amazing footage. Uh, but, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll come back to your uh, advice about how to uh, deal with those risks in a little bit. I'd like to come to you now, Chris Beaton, uh, your council's got a barrier in place, but not a, a net. Can you tell us about the eco net and and how it works, and maybe your thoughts on on the the non eco nets?
3: Yeah, look, our, our net, Julian, it's 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 not really a net; it's a barrier basically. Yeah. It's made from plastic, so if you can imagine, if you can imagine, before. Um, a four-pronged um, star and each of those stars is attached to another star and then there's rope going through them which holds it all together. So the gaps between those stars are about you know, 30 centimetres wide. So in the time that the um, barrier has been in the, in the water, we haven't had any other marine animals or any marine animals actually trapped in that barrier. So it's been great. It's not a net. It does well. It actually is a fish attracting a device, believe it or not. We okay. have seals coming in to actually feed on the fish that are there. So it um, it works really well.
0: So uh, how did this eco-barrier come about, Chris?
3: Right. We were approached by a chap way back in 2013 who had a really good idea for a, um, a shark net or a shark barrier. Um, we, being an innovative council, were quite keen to give this chap a go. It's all manufactured locally um using um local parts so we thought well let's give it a go let's let's try it in the in our beach which was coogee beach which was recently voted the first the 13th best beach in australia by tourism australia had to get that February. plug in yep good <laughs> yeah that plug in um so look we 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 were quite happy to give this chap a go so He put the barrier in at his cost. Um, It was in for about 12 months, and it was was good. The the local population were enjoying it, the benefits of it, having that sense of safety going out into deeper water. Um, So after the one-year trial, he proposed another three-year trial, so we were happy to to go down that path. Um, After that three-year trial, with no incidences, it was working fantastically. We went out to the community and did a a survey asking them if they'd like to keep the the barrier in place. Um, 99.7% of the respondents wanted the barrier to remain. So we effectively started leasing the barrier.
0: There we go. And could you just give us a sense of uh, the, the scale of the barrier and how far out it is, Chris?
3: Yeah, the barrier is about 300 metres long. It's attached to four pylons, two on the beach, two in the water and it goes out about 50 metres. It's in a depth of probably about four to five metres, depending on what the tide's doing.
0: Uh, Valerie Taylor, what do you think of that idea of, a, of an eco-barrier compared to the, the nets, which we, you know, you, you've, you've told us have all those problems with bycatch?
1: It's a fantastic idea, and it's the first time I've heard of it. Um, I have, I mean, as Spiros in the early days, we used to go out on fishing boats into the coral sea. We had no money. We would film in the morning and spear fish for the boat in the afternoon and we discovered because <coughs> the fisherman told us to kill a dead shark and keep it on the deck overnight and put it in the bottom on the bottom of the ocean where we were working and the sharks wouldn't come in. We would see none. Without the dead shark down there, we would have a lot of trouble getting our fish in without the sharks taking them. The dead and decaying shark has a really weird smell, not so much like something rotten, it's like something chemical. And there is a company in America who've come to the same decision, who are working on making... This smell, this odor, synthetically, so they can put down big balls of rope or something on the bottom, soaked in this smell, and I know that works because it worked for us. Mm. But I do like the idea of the, a mesh, plastic mesh net that doesn't catch things. That's great.
0: Mm. Hmm. Madeline Riley, uh, from the data that's on the the database of shark-human interactions, can you discern sort of indications of what sort of preventive or risk mitigation measures look to be, I suppose, most statistically effective?
2: Um, Yeah, so from the database, we're mostly getting information about the shark bites themselves. Mm. Um, But my PhD is also focused on Uh, testing mostly personal deterrence. So shark bite mitigation can be separated into two categories. You've got area mitigation, which are your nets and your drum lines and um, this shark safe barrier and drones, and then also personal deterrence. So these aim to reduce the probability of a bite if a shark comes close to a human, like within three metres. Um, so can,
0: of- can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, Batman's shark attack <laughs> repellent spray. I'm not sure if that is uh, a proven technology, but what are the examples of personal shark deterrence?
2: Yeah. So, no, you're exactly right. These have been tested. You usually um, have them on yourself. You wear them on your surfboard or your scuba tank. Some emit electric pulses, some are magnetic and some emit a smell. Um, We've found from the research that generally electric deterrents are the most effective. One in particular has reduced the likelihood of a bite from white sharks by almost 60% and um, other products have not affected shark behaviour at all. But, the more that personal deterrents are being scientifically tested, the more informed that manufacturers are. So, like I said, we've found that some are effective and some are not. And those manufacturers of the products that haven't been effective have used these studies to go back and redesign and improve their products to work better. And they have. They've been tested again and they have been found to be effective with big potentially dangerous sharks like white sharks. So, yeah, that goes to show why scientific testing of mitigation measures is just so important.
0: Uh, Valerie Taylor, um, what personal deterrence have you used? I think I remember the footage of uh, the other people having cameras that they could use. You had a bit a stick or something like that. Um, I'm not sure if you've published a scientific study on it, but what would you say um, is the, uh, the most important things to know in terms of uh, personal shark deterrence?
1: Julian, back about 40 years, the Natal Sharks board asked us to go across to South Africa and test an electronic device and it worked like magic. We shot an entire half-hour documentary surrounded by five great whites with no cage. This device worked perfectly. Then we get to Thieves, war, all sorts of things that were happening in that country, and the technology was lost and they've never been able to replace it. We made two films, one in Australia, one in South Africa, and the device worked every time. And it was, it was an electronic device. We also did tests for the American Navy, they sent their scientists out here, and we found that the magnets got bitten off. I'm just saying that just because that's what happened. Mm. Uh, It's a different thing to work above water than to work underwater with any shark repellent. You basically need to watch the shark coming. You pretty much know when you're in trouble by the body language of the shark, and that's when you give it a good stab or poke or bang it on the nose or hit it in the gills. They hate being hit in the gills. Uh, that's been my experience
0: mm.
1: and it's all on film. <laughs> Indeed it is. <laughs> that,
0: thank you so much, uh, Valerie Taylor. Chris Beaton, could I come back to you? Um, I've had a couple of texts in about uh, the experience of the a- attempt to install an eco-barrier in Ballina, um, and our text is saying that that trial failed and it needed to be removed. Have you looked at the uh, the different experiences of eco-barriers elsewhere other than the, the ones that you've installed?
3: Um, yeah, look, we're aware of that Ballina episode. Um, it was unfortunate. It was the same chap that actually designed and installed our barrier. My understanding of that was the actual conditions that they were trying to install the barrier were completely different to the conditions that we have here. There was, you know, five-metre swells. The seabed could change, you know, from being five metres from seabed to the top of the ocean to, to seven metres overnight. So it was really a difficult challenge for that barrier to be installed in those conditions.
0: Interesting. Um, uh, Madeline Riley, uh, coming back to this uh, question of uh, population and, and, and attacks. Um, is, uh, is there any evidence that sharks are coming closer to shore because of overfishing?
2: Yeah, look, it's really difficult to estimate the population abundance of sharks at the best of times Mm. or of any animal but sharks are so elusive and also they live in the ocean so i really do take my hat off to the amazing scientists that work in this area but the literature is saying we know that white shark populations have seen substantial declines around the globe and including australia a 2020 study assessed the populations of australia and new zealand white sharks and they've found that these populations have recently stabilized not exploded but stabilized and um, and that's that's the point of conservation efforts isn't it they're still on Australia's threatened species list but um, yeah we face a wicked problem of keeping humans safe and also conserving our planet's wildlife where predators exist. And this is why personal deterrence and shark bite-resistant wetsuits and helicopter surveillance, et cetera, it it all comes into play here. We should be using a wide range of mitigation measures available to us um, to mitigate these interactions.
0: And uh, I guess it's also to do with... um, peace of mind and the perceptions that humans have when they're, they're in the water. Uh, Chris, how much of a difference do you think that the eco barrier has made in terms of <laughs> swimmer peace of mind? And how would you compare that, for example, to some of the, the, the personal deterrence that we've heard uh, Madeline and Valerie talking about? Um, Look, I
3: I know, Julian, that um, the the barrier is very popular with people. People are really quite keen to actually now swim out into deeper water, whereas before they were sort of limited to the distance they'd go out. So I myself swim in the barrier and I myself was a bit dubious about, you know, going out too far in the water. But now I swim in it all year round with peace of mind and, and without any issues um, as far as personal deterrence, I think everything's got a place in reality. You know, if, if I'm, a, I'm a diver and I would wear a shark shield if I was under the water. Under the water is a completely different thing to being on the surface, but I think they all have their place, different um, horses for courses, so to speak.
0: Indeed. Valerie Taylor, um, uh, what have you observed about the the different ways that humans approach their dives now? Do you think we're at a, a, a more sort of um, conservation-sensitive approach these days?
1: Oh, yes, I do. We're definitely more more careful about ourselves and what we do to the marine world. All the animals that are edible by humans or considered dangerous are under threat along all our coasts. The fishermen have a lot to answer for. They fish very harshly. The sharks are frequently caught. Great white sharks are valuable to fishermen because they can sell the jaws, I believe, for up to $20,000. So, no great white that gets tangled or ends up with on the line of a human will be let free, I don't think. Uh, the days when Ron knows to cut them out of the nets and drag them to shore and release them from a wire trace are pretty much gone. And I do know that they're not finding so many great whites when they take the tourists out of South Australia. I think... All the main predators on land and in the sea should be protected by law. They were put there by nature to do a job and they do that job far better than any of us could. And I'm very much against mesh nets, not just because of the sharks, but because of all the beautiful marine animals that get tangled and die. Mm, mm. That's That has to be another way. Well, I know there's another way. But who am I? I left school when I was 15. I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm a diver who worked know, with sharks.
0: And you know, know a fair bit about it. Val, Valerie, <laughs> could you just tell us, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but um, in your own words, what, what is it that you love about sharks?
1: I don't say that I love them, but I certainly admire them. Hmm. It's like going into Africa and admiring a lion and a cheetah. They have different personalities, but they're big cats and they could be potentially dangerous. The What I admire most about sharks, of course, is their absolute beauty. They go through the water like, like an arrow. They don't seem to have to even move their tail very much. And sometimes you can have an interaction. Twice in my life, I've got to know a shark. And uh, they do have... A very high intelligence. I've proven you can teach a white tip reef shark a simple trick in one dive. Food related, of course. Try doing that with your dog.
0: <laughs> Thanks very much, uh, Valerie. Uh, now, Madeline Riley, we know that you're um, not averse to diving deep into shark data, but uh, do, do you go into the water yourself? Have you swum with sharks
2: also? Yeah, we do most of our testing um, out off of South Australia, and we've spent countless hours out at sea gaining more and more trials with a lot of these deterrence to see if they work. So I'm very lucky to be um, to be able to witness these beautiful animals in the wild. Yeah,
0: and 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 when you um, do your personal deterrence research, what what personal deterrence do you take out? What's your strategy?
2: <laughs> um. I have. Uh, I'm on maternity leave at the moment, so it's been a very long time since. Fair enough. Yeah. Like that, um, but yeah, I think electric deterrents have got the most promise at the moment. But um, yeah, there's always new things coming out, and it's. Um, I'm I'm never going to say never to a specific deterrent, and unless it's been tested. So, my advice out there: if anybody wants to get a deterrent or look into a mitigation measure, just jump onto Google Scholar, type the name in, and see if it's had testing behind it and what that says.
0: Well and well and truly worth doing the proper research before you dive in, uh, Chris Beaton. Uh, a final word from you. Um, it's a question of uh, getting the mix right. Is that is that your view? Yeah, I believe
3: so, Julian. I think there's um, there's a place for electronic devices. There's a place for barriers, but not nets. I don't I don't agree with the idea of putting in nets like they have in New South Wales or Queensland. But certainly barriers like we have that don't have any bycatch or anything like that. I think they're a great initiative, and you know, not something you'd put in a you know across a kilometre or something like that, but. If you're just looking to enclose a small bay or a small area for people to actually go out and enjoy the ocean, I think these um, these plastic nets are the way to go.
0: Fantastic. Well, look, it's been a great uh, discussion. Thanks very much uh, to all our guests. Thanks very much to you, Chris Beaton. No worries. Thank you. And Chris is Head of Sustainability and Environment for the City of Coburn, which has got one of those eco nets in. Thanks also uh, to you, Madeline Riley.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me
0: and all the best. Uh, Madeline's a PhD candidate in shark bite mitigation measures at Flinders University. And it's been a great pleasure and an honour to have you also on the program, Valerie Taylor. Thanks again to you.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Julian. I really appreciate it because I, I'm really, really against these nets.
0: I hear you loud and clear, and it's been yes. great speaking with you. And, uh, yeah, I do highly recommend that documentary about Valerie's career. It's on. Uh, it was, it's a National Geographic documentary called Playing With Sharks. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories
2: on the ABC Listen app.